we're looking at uh, this, these three parables that Jesus tells to a group of people. And the, the group of people that he tells it to is very important for us. But what Jesus is doing as he looks to these two groups of people that have gathered, uh, he's, he's trying to establish something the world has never seen before, a community not based on merit, not based on duty, not based on religious observance or, or self-expression, but a community based on the radical grace of God. The world had never seen it before. We call it the church, uh, but it, it makes a family out of people that were lost and then were found. And so Jesus tells these stories. He tells these parables of things that were lost and then they're found. He tells three of them, uh, and, and he tells those in such a way because in the one way, in, in, on the one hand, they're a window to heaven. You, you see what the kingdom of heaven is like when we look into these parables. On the other hand, they're a mirror to our souls. So we should find ourselves in the story. And in this story, there's three characters. There's a father and two sons. Now, before we get that, uh, one of the reasons Jesus tells it like this is because we can all relate to the parables. We can all relate to having lost something and hopefully found something. Uh, you know in the moment that it's lost and you realize it's lost and you begin your search, how valuable that thing really is in your life, or not valuable as the case may be. Uh, but there's nothing more valuable than a child to a parent. So I told you last week I would tell you something I lost. I lost my daughter on the mountain last winter at Copper Mountain uh, skiing. My youngest daughter and I, Hannah, we went skiing late in the season, and uh, we were on our last run of the day, and we took the longest run up, and I said, okay, Hannah, we're going to... We're going to finish this up. It's just me and you. Uh, do you want to lead or should I follow? And, and she said, uh, I'll, I'll follow you. And, uh, and I said, okay, we're going to do the exact same run we just did. Uh, there's some blues, and in the end, it ends in a black, but she's pretty good. And so I said, we'll do that, but we're going to go through the trees like we like to go, and, and then we'll, we'll, so you just follow me. And, and so we got off and went, and as is often the case, I, I, I go down first and then stop and wait till she comes down. And as she was coming down, and as she was about 20 feet away, I thought we had made eye contact. I thought she had recognized that I was there, so I turned into the woods. And I went about 100 yards and turned to look back, and she's not there. Now, we have a deal with our kids that if you ever get lost, you just ski down to the lodge. But, but my daughters are directionally challenged. So they, uh, in that moment, I'm like, oh, no. She's, we've had to, like, physically, we've had to, like, ski out of control to stop her from going down double black diamond slopes before because she doesn't look all the way down the mountain. She just looks right there. And so I was like, man, if she turns off on the double black diamond, she's not only going to be on that, she'll be on another part of the mountain. She, it's late in the day, uh, and, and I'm worried that she's not going to be able to find it. So I said, okay, I'm going to cut her off at the pass, get out of the trees and see where she comes. And I waited there, and she's not there. And I waited there, and I'm like, well, maybe she actually did what we said we would do. You go to the bottom. And so I'm now booking it to the bottom, hoping she's there. And, and when I get to the bottom, I look around. She's not there. She's nowhere to be seen. And now, uh, again, I've, I'm there just, just with her. I look at my phone. It's, it's got 8% battery, and I don't know what to do. I'm looking everywhere, and I, I, I text Jennifer. I'm like, I lost your kid. And uh, <laughs> she's like, What? I'm like, yeah, Hannah, she was supposed to follow me. I don't know where she is. And so she, now she's freaking, probably not the smartest move, but uh, now I don't know what to do. Do I get back up on the, the chairlift? That's a 20-minute ride. And then try to maybe find her on the, I didn't know what to do. And I'm freaking out. 
And so uh, Jennifer calls again. Now my phone's at like 3%. And I'm like, I, I don't know. And should I go up? And she's like, don't go up. Go get the ski patrol and tell them. And so I go to the guys. They're like 22 years old. They're like, oh, a kid is lost? Okay. And uh, I was like, no, you've got, you got to send some people out there. She's got a big bright red helmet and a pink jacket. Would you please just try to find her for us? And, and they're like, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll get on it. And so I'm just waiting, helpless, not knowing what to do, just like longingly looking up at the mountain, waiting for like 25, 30 minutes. I don't know where my youngest daughter is at this point. And so uh, finally, I see a, a man coming down and a little person behind him and, and stopping every like 20 feet. And Hannah says, because he was out of shape, he was needing a breath every 20 feet. But I, I finally recognize, I think that's Hannah. Uh, it's finally, it's Hannah. And just that relief you feel in that moment when your daughter who is lost is found. Every parent gets that. And, and maybe you're a parent and you've never lost your kid because you're a better parent than I am. But you'll understand because you, you realize, man, you don't want to feel that. So when, when you start to understand what, what that relief feels like, what that joy feels like, what that discovery feels like, then you start to understand what Jesus is getting at in this parable. As he begins to talk about to the, to the Pharisees and the tax collectors, remember, we can't understand this parable without understanding the context. In verses 1 and 2, it says there were tax collectors, sinners, Pharisees, and scribes. So two very different kind of people. Tax collectors were, were horrible people. Like I said last week, they, they, they deserved to be burned alive on their best day. They had sold out their countrymen. They were wicked sinners, as, as the text says. And then you have the Pharisees. The Pharisees were I mean, they're the most respected people in community. We, we see them through the lens of the Gospels, but, but everyone, you wanted your kid to grow up and be a Pharisee. And the Pharisees, after all, get a hard rap because they knew their Bible. They understood in the Old Testament that the people of God repeatedly turned their back on God, went after idolatry, uh, disobeyed God, and so they said, we're not going to be like that. We're going to honor God. We're going to honor God so much that we're going to create extra laws kind of as buffers so that we don't break God's law. And everyone's like, man, those guys, they're morally upright, good citizens. That's who I hope my son grows up to be someday. But they're murmuring. They're grumbling because in verse 2 it says that, that, the, that these tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to Jesus and that, that he eats with them, he receives them, and that makes them grumble. Now, what's interesting in this passage, we're, we're going to look at it for the next several weeks, so this is just an overview, but what's interesting, quickly you should be able to place the characters, that the younger brother is the, the tax collectors and sinners, and the older brother is the Pharisees and the scribes. And yet, uh, in the parable, Jesus doesn't make the younger brother seem like a good dude, not, not in any way. He doesn't downplay the sin of the tax collectors and sinners in any way, shape, or form. In fact, the way he tells the story, culturally, we, we would say, man, you're far worse than you could ever believe, younger brother. But, but this is the parable, in, in your Bible, it might say the parable of the prodigal son, and that's a misnomer. That's a, that's a wrong title for this parable. A lot of times when you hear a sermon on this passage, it stops with the, the reunion of the younger brother with the son, and you think, man, everything's come together, but that's not the point. Remember, Jesus' primary target audience right now is the older brother's. He's speaking to Pharisees, he's speaking to scribes, and he says, let me tell you what the kingdom of heaven is like. And he says, it's amazing the grace of God for the younger brother, but 
Jesus loves the older brother as well. And so uh, let's begin to dig into this. What we're going to see here is there's a threat to community. There, there's a, uh, see, we read this through a first, 21st century American lens, uh, individualistic, how do I apply this to my life? And that's fine, but Jesus is trying to speak to a community, and he says, I'm going to establish a radical new community based on grace, but there's some threats, and there's a younger brother threat to community, and there's an older brother threat to community, and both destroy community. So we're going to see a few things. We're going to see how community gets destroyed, why it gets destroyed by idolatry, and how it gets healed. We'll look at that here in just a second. So there's two ways of kind of that, that resist this radical new community. You see right away, that, again, this is just an overview. You see a younger brother way and an older brother way. The younger brother way is very popular uh, outside the walls of the church in, in 21st century America. It's the way of self-discovery. So the way you find happiness, the way you find fulfillment is you just do you. You, you be your thing. Don't let anyone tell you what to do. Don't let anyone say what's right or wrong. But, but you uh, will find your fulfillment when you be who you want to be. And so do whatever you want. There's no moral authority. There's no right or wrong. And as you pursue your thing, that's you. That's kind of younger brother uh, resistance to community. And then there's the older brother. That's the, the self-righteousness. That's the, you come in, you check the boxes, you pray the prayers, you give the offerings, you do all the things to somehow put God in your debt. And then uh, in the end of the day, hopefully God will pay off for you. And so these two ways, Jesus says, both ways are actually destroying community. And he starts with the younger brother. Let's look at that. He says, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. Right away, you should see that this story is about a father and two sons. It's not just about the prodigal son. He says, and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. So in 21st, in first century Jewish Palestine, the law was that when the, when the father dies, the inheritance goes to the sons. And the oldest son gets, two, gets a double portion, and the other son gets uh, his portion. So uh, he's, he's saying, look, I, I want my inheritance now. I'll take my third of the estate now, and the older son is going to get the other two. And so right away, if you're first century Jew listening to this, you're saying, that's not right. Uh, the operative word is when the father dies, that happens. So what, what the younger brother is saying is, look, I'm tired of living un under your house. I'm tired of living under your roof. I, I want you to be dead. It's a, a massive assault on the family, a massive assault on the patriarch of the family. He says, dad, I wish you were dead. I just want your things. Can, can you do that for me? And, and so Ken Bailey, who is a well, he just died a couple years ago, but he was a, a, a scholar commentator. He lived in the Middle East for many, many decades. He writes a lot of commentaries through the perspective of, of a Middle Eastern person. I love his books. And he says this about the father. He says, a traditional Middle Eastern father can only respond in one way. He would be expected to strike the boy across the face for his insolence and drive him out of the house with verbal and physical blows. So that, that would be what the crowd would like. The crowd would be like, what is wrong with that kid? Smack that kid around, get him out of the house, say, I don't want anything to do with you. You've assaulted the whole family. In fact, you've assaulted the whole community because the family is the, is the brick, the cornerstone of the community. And so you're out of here. And so they're shocked. They're, the, the crowd is saying, what is wrong with this kid? But, but then a second shock comes. It says, and he divided his property between them. 
said, okay, we'll do that. So this is an assault on on the family economically. The the father now has to sell all his property and and divide it up. And so he gives the older son two-thirds of of the estate, but he's still living with the older son. So they're kind of, the dad is still in control, but it's it's all the older sons. And then he gives the other third to the younger son, and and he divides his property to them. And and we see, well, what what is going on with that? Why, Why is that? The story will continue, and we'll, we'll dig into it more next week, but he does what younger brothers do. He goes off and he squanders all the money. He lives a, a lavish lifestyle. He spends his money on prostitutes and drugs and alcohol and all the things, and, but eventually the money runs out. The famine comes. He wakes up one day. He heads back to, to his father, and the story you think is about to, where there's this great tension, this great assault on community is by a miracle of miracles is going to be healed, and then the older brother story comes in. And the older brother comes down the road and, and he hears a party going on. Now, if you're, if you're walking in the country and you're a long way off and, and they're throwing down a party that you can hear, I mean, it's pumping. It's, <laughs> you're like, what is that music? And so uh, he calls out his, his, his people and he's like, what's going on there? And they're like, it's amazing that that brother of yours, he came back. And the father accepted him back. Can you believe it? And the father killed the fattened lamb, and he's having a huge party uh, because your brother who was lost and was dead is alive. So come on in. Come into the party. And the brother's like, are you serious? You can't be serious right now. That, that brother of mine, that irresponsible, good-for-nothing, insolent little snot of a brother is back, and my dad accepted him back? Now, you have to, we have to kind of understand something at this point. All the money that's left is the older brother's money now. And the dad has just killed the fattened calf. And the dad has put a robe on him. And the dad has put a ring on him. And the ring was a signet ring saying, you can make financial track, transactions again on the family estate. And the older brother's like, no, 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 no. That's not right. That's not good. And there's another offense to the family. There's another assault on community. There's another uh, denigrating of the father's status and his reputation. Uh, and, and he comes out and he pleads. He's like, don't do this. Come on in. Don't do this. So there's an older brother and there's a younger brother. Their actions look very different, but their heart is the same issue. They're both controlled by idol worship. Idol worship. Idolatry, putting anything in the place of ultimate importance, in the place of God, and, and living for it, worshiping it, pursuing it as if it was God. They both have an idol problem. They both have what Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory, cranking out new idols after new idols after new idols. And we all have this. And again, this is a mirror to our souls. Some of us are more younger brother-ish and some of us are more older brother-ish, and uh, there's this idolatry that is going on in their hearts that they can't seem to uh, get recognized. So the younger brother idolatry looks like this. It it looks like immorality. It it looks like going off and just doing whatever he wants with his life. And, and, And for a while, it was hard to see because he lived in the house, he obeyed the father, but after some time and for a very long time, he, he began to resent the father and his rules and the household. And so a, a moment comes, if you're a younger brother, when you get to a Y in the road and you realize, uh, I can either go down this road uh, where I see happiness for me, whether it's power,
power or sex or money or status or, or continue to obey the Father. And at, at a certain point, because the idol gets, captures your heart, you go down that road and you rebel. But the older brother has a rebellion too. See, see the younger brother, he was really just using the Father for his things, and so was the older brother. The older brother just saw a different path to those things. His path was, I'm going to be good, I'm going to be righteous, I'm going to be the, the favored son, and I'm going to get all the things that are coming to me. And that's what he says. He, he says that in uh, verse 28, he says, but he was angry, refused to go, and his father came out and treated him, but he answered the, his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you gave me you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the dad says, look, everything I had is always yours. But, but the older brother is the same issue. He's not loving the father for the father's sake. He's loving the father for the father's things. And the younger brother did the same. Now, at this point in history, every religious leader and every parent and every buddy in the crowd would say, what's the more dangerous path? They would say, oh, it's the younger brother. I mean, he's going off to the far country. He's hooking up with prostitutes. He's getting drunk. He's doing drugs. I mean, he is, he, he is, that's the dangerous path. And, and most parents would be like, well, I don't care if I have an older brother. At least he obeys. But Jesus is saying something radically new. And he's saying it this, that the far more dangerous path is the path of the older brother. Because if you're a younger brother, there is a day where you might just wake up in the muck and mire of the pigsty and be like, what am I doing? What is going on? And you might head back to the father. But the older brother, the further he gets away from the father, the closer he thinks he is. I mean, he's got the nice clothes, he's got the good family, he's got the good household, and he's a dutiful son, full of self-righteousness, full of anger, and full of an expectation that God has to come through for him. Now, again, you may have spent time on one side of these or the other. Our hearts get pushed one way or the other all the time. I spent time on both. I was a younger brother and rebelled, and then I came into the church, and I learned very quickly that church is a good place for older brothers. The church is a place where everyone just kind of checks the box, and so Jesus is saying, that's a dangerous path. If you think God owes you something, so you know you're an older brother if things don't go right in your life and you're angry at God. If, you've, if sickness or death or, or your job doesn't go well, you say, but God, I served you all these years. God, I was there. I, I prayed the prayers, and why have you let my life go like this? So Jesus, because he loves younger brothers and he loves older brothers, invites them in to community together. But what is really going on here? It's not just idolatry. It's what, what Augustine would call disordered loves. Augustine is the best teacher in church history on this idea. He was born in the year 354, died in 418. Uh, he lived before he was a Christian. His mom was a Christian. His dad was not, but his mom prayed for him every day. But he had what he would describe as a passion problem. He loved women. When he was 17, he had a, he had a, a live-in girlfriend with a kid. He eventually kicked her to the curb, and he went around and found mistress after mistress after, after mistress. He loved food. 
Anyone relate to that? He loved wine. He loved good drink. He loved passion. He, he loved the, the praise of crowd. He was a brilliant orator. And so crowds would come and, and, and clap for him and, and say, aren't you awesome, Augustine? He said, but three things were, were always present in his life, he noticed as he looked back. He said there was always an emptiness that he could never quite fill. That's the first one. There was always things that he didn't want to do any longer, but he just kept doing them. He was a, a slave to his sin. And he said everywhere he went, he left a trail of relational uh, destruction behind him. He couldn't hold on to any relationships because he just continued to pursue. He was the younger brother. But when God converted him by his radical grace, and Augustine is the guy that brought the church back to grace, grace, grace. So Luther would find Augustine and, and learn about grace, and Calvin would find Augustine and learn about grace, and, and Jonathan Edwards would read Augustine and learn about grace. Augustine would write this, this autobiography about 10 years after his conversion called The Confessions becomes a classic of church history. But in the Confessions, it's an it's a autobiography, but it's a prayer to God where he's kind of going over his life and he's confessing his sins, but he's also reflecting on the goodness and grace of God. And so uh, he's trying to figure out what went wrong. Why, do, why does he choose the bad thing all the time? And he, he comes up with this idea of disordered love. He says, no one does something bad for bad's sake. Everyone does something because they love something out of order. So he says, all of our problems, all of our brokenness in the world comes from disordered loves. Loving some things more than they should and loving other things not as much as they should be loved and loving them out of order, out of the creation order. So when you love food more than you love your body, which is a higher order than food, then you have a, 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 an indulgence in food and eventually you have a breakdown in the body. If you love... Um, if you love money and power, which is a good thing, more than you love your family, you become a workaholic and your family suffers as a result. And he says it's this disordered love. And so let me just read this. He says no, no matter what we do, it's a disordered love problem. He says you say a man has murdered someone. Well, what was his motive? Either he desired the man's wife or something belonging to him. Or maybe he was afraid of losing something that this man held dear or he had lost something and was burning with revenge. So if we ask the question again, what is the motive for his crime? It is because he loves something too much. That is the motive for his crime. He says all disordered love leads to brokenness. So, so if you love people who are very high on the order, but you love that person more than you love God, that's going to lead to relational society, cultural brokenness when people become our idols. So Augustine said, the whole thing is we have to reorder our loves. We have to continually reorder our loves and continually put the things in the right spot so that we live in peace and harmony. Now, the most famous line from Augustine's uh, confessions, you may have heard it before, comes here. But I'll read some of the, read up, the lead up to it. He says this, that all disordered love leads to brokenness and emptiness. It says, what does ambition seek except honor and glory? But only you, Lord, have a glory forever. What does power of the might desire except to be feared? But none has power that, never be, that can never be seized and stolen but you. What do the lonely and the anxious long for except a love that they cannot lose? But who can give a love that does not fade and die but you? What does weariness seek except rest? 
But what sure rest is there apart from you? Thus the soul commits adultery whenever it turns from you and seeks things that it cannot find except in you. O Lord, you made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. Augustine said it's all about finding the right order in your life again. So how do we overcome brokenness caused by disordered love? That's the third point. Only by sacrificial love of the Father. Look at verse 12 again. As the younger brother comes back, he says, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, what's going on there? If you read any commentary, it'll point this out. The word for property that the son uses is not the same word that Luke or Jesus uses later on. The word for property that the son uses, it means property. It means inheritance. It means stuff. But it says here in the second half, and he divided his bios. We get the word biology. It means life. He, he literally tore up his life and divided his life between the sons. And in one way, that would be true because the land was, was your life. And if you had to sell your land, you're, you're tearing up your life. But, but the father, he, he doesn't just slap the son and say, get out of here. He, he takes the blow. He, take, he sacrifices. He tears up his life so for the possibility of reconciliation with his son. And, and that's what we see that the father does. He literally will, in Jesus, send his son to tear up his life so that there will be a possibility of reconciliation. Well, how do we see that? Now, when you begin to see that, you begin to see something that Augustine says is very important. It's not that just we say, okay, we have disordered loves. I've got to try harder to love God first. Augustine says that will never work. I mean, at the best, you become the older brother by doing that out of duty and say, I'm going to make sure God is first. He said that'll never work. Augustine says we are, we are motivated by beauty. And his words, not mine, he's like, when, when you see a beautiful woman, you want to get up and talk to that woman. It causes action. That's what he said. And so he said, when you see beauty, that will move your heart. So he said, how do you make sure that God is in the first order? Well, you have to see the beauty of God. You have to see the beauty of what he's done. And he, he, he concludes it like this. He says, rightly then my hope is fixed strongly on him. This will heal all the diseases of my soul. There is nothing more beautiful. There is no more beautiful sight or even thought than that of an infinitely perfect and happy being would descend into this world and sacrifice everything for ungrateful, undeserving human beings like us. Do you see what Augustine is saying? If you want to have your loves rightly ordered, you have to renew your mind in the gospel continually. You have to see what God has done. He's torn his life apart for you. And when you get a glimpse of that, you say, that's what is important. And your life begins to get ordered. Your, your, your relationships begin to get, find their right place. And, and when you celebrate the gospel, you begin to get healed. So we have to ask ourselves the question, where do we have disordered loves in our lives? Do you, do you know where your loves are disordered? If you're really serious about it and you really want to get the order back right, then ask the person that knows you best. Say, hey, you, you know my life. Do you, is there anything out of whack in my life where I'm loving some things more than I should or other things not as much as I should? And, and as you do that, your, your loves begin to get disordered, reordered. 
And then as we come together each week, we, the reason we uh, come together around the gospel is because we, we're desperately trying to get a, a, a glimpse of the beauty of God's grace and mercy once again, because that will cause us to rise up and take action in our lives. That's the kind of community Jesus is creating here, where younger brothers and older brothers can say, I love the Father because of the Father, not because of the Father's things. I think our churches are full of older brothers that would be totally content with going to heaven and God not being there. And that's not heaven, that's hell. So we need to get a glimpse. We need to see the beauty of God. That's what will cause us to obey out of delight and not duty. That's what will cause us to delight in God. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And so we gather each, each week celebrate, we sing songs that God would reorder our loves, that we leave, out, leave this place today, that, that, that there's a, a world of brokenness, a world of disordered loves, and we alone have the message that can reorder their lives. So I'm going to pray for us to that end, and then we'll come to this table and be reminded once again of the beauty and grace of God. Father, thank you for your word to us. God, I thank you that you love you love us when we rebel and find ourselves in a pigsty, but you also love us when we're in your house and our heart is cold and hard. I pray, Lord, for younger brothers here this morning that they would see a glimpse of your beauty and grace and rise up and go to you. And I pray especially for older brothers here that, that we would repent of our goodness and turn to you and, and enjoy you for who you are not for the things you give to us. So Lord, help us to reorder our loves this week. Help us to see you and delight in you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.